Before we get into this week's conversation with Joey Torres, I just want to announce at the top of the show our winner of last episode's drawing for a copy of Jamie Wright's The Very Worst Missionary. Uh, and the winner is Caitlin Thompson. So we will be getting a hold of you to find out how we can get that book to you via snail mail. Even though the contest is over, we still have the survey up and we'll probably keep it up for a while. Uh, the information we received from everyone that filled out the survey has been really helpful, like really, really helpful. Uh, so if you'd like to help out the show, just give us a better f- feel of where everyone who's listening is coming from and how we can better serve the Irenicast community. Uh, please consider going to irenicast.com slash survey and filling that out for us. Uh, we would really appreciate it. With that out of the way, without any further ado, here's an amazing conversation that we had with uh, Joey Torres. And I'll save the introduction for the conversation because Alan has a great one for this one. So thanks again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me is my co-host, Alan. Heyo. On the first and third <laughs> Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspective on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we have a guest with us. Um, so I'm going to throw it over to Alan, and he's going to introduce our guest and our topic for today. This is Joey Torres. Hi, Joey. Hello. <laughs> uh, Joey is, correct me if I'm wrong, if I got any of this information wrong, you are a PhD student doing religious studies at Davis, UC Davis. Correct. And uh, I thought your work was so interesting that I wanted you to have have you on the show because I think not only are you brilliant, but your ideas are brilliant too. So <laughs> that's true. Well, I think I think we should discuss my brilliance after the show, and then you okay. can tell me if you still think that's true. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, just just like off the bat, Joey is doing some research on uh, evangelical churches and kind of how they're you know interact with progressive ideals and things and so i thought that was fascinating the way that we met was was really fun um (laughs) joey basically approached my family and said i've been stalking you for a couple days i accosted you you at a a family fun center in albuquerque new mexico (laughs) right at a bowling alley maybe maybe your end's more interesting because mine there's just this person coming up stopping my family being like I know this is weird, but I've seen you guys everywhere. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear both sides of this because I've heard Alan's side. So now, <laughs> well, so I had been the observer for several days at this point, which was I was already blown away. Okay, so the story goes: on Friday, I'm flying in from Sacramento to a layover in Phoenix, and then on to Albuquerque. And I always try to take a glance at who's on the plane still from the layover onward, because Albuquerque is not often a huge destination. And I saw this dude and his what I imagined were his parents. And I said, Oh, that's mm-hmm. funny. They're on my same flight. I make a little mental note of it. Not a big deal. The next day, the next morning, um, at this, in this little town that's sort of surrounded by Albuquerque, um, I see the same dude and his parents at this basketball game where my nephew was playing. And I thought okay. for like, for like little kids, it's a little kid league. Yeah. I like seven and eight, I think is the age group, maybe even a little younger. Okay, that's weird. Mind blown. Okay, that dude was on my flight yesterday. I whispered to my brother, not a big deal. Um, We had planned to go out of town to an even smaller part of New Mexico where my family's from, do this trip, gone for three days, come back on a random Monday of a non-holiday weekend. I am at this new place in Albuquerque that's like a bowling alley pizza place, and I'm just hanging out. And I see, lo and behold, 
this dude and his parents with this other these other people that had I'd seen that were not on the flight but were in the Albuquerque part of the trip and I was like which yeah. ended up which ended up being my brother who right. lives in Albuquerque and my nephews are the one that were playing in the um the the league yeah so yeah. I go up and I was like okay I have to stop you guys they're about to walk out I kind of passed them a little bit and I'm kind of like okay this feels so strange I should just talk to them and I whispered to my brother like dude that that guy that I saw on Saturday was the same guy on my flight that's here today and he's freaking out and we're all kind of just like you know should I talk to him should I not should I say something this is so weird and I go up and I start talking and I was like you're gonna think this is so funny but you're on my flight and you're like, oh, no way. And you're just sort of laughing about it. And I'm like, and then I saw you on Saturday in Corrales. And you're like, oh, my God, that's so weird. And so we just had this whole talk about it. And we start talking and um, go to find out that you're a UCC minister. I have an MDiv from the Isle of School of Theology in Denver. I trained to become a minister, but I decided to wait to get my PhD. So I'm in Davis getting a PhD and Ellen, you're in a like, program that I had filled out an application for like three years ago and just couldn't like pull the trigger on. And so I was like, are you kidding me? You're in the religious studies program. Yeah, it was crazy. crazy. So we, you know, random flights, random, random days to travel, random places to see each other. It feel, it felt, I guess to me, you know, it already it felt was, like maybe I should say something. Right. And then to find out that we have all these things in common was really crazy. Yeah. And so, we exchanged contact information. Your friend requested me on Facebook right away and find right. out we're both these like super, prog- well, you know, I know right. UCC is progressive, but I was like, you know, there can be. I'm still a white dude in a congregational church. And so some of the UACC churches are not progressive. I mean, some of them are because it's, it's denominated is uh, congregation by congregation. Right. Yeah. And then thinking about Northern California, Northern California mm-hmm. in its own right has pockets of you know, progressivism as well as deep conservatism. So I was a little apprehensive, like, is he as progressive as he, as he says he is? And so we stayed friends on Facebook, chime in on each other's posts once in a while. And then, you know, a month ago, we more deeply connected and here we are. Well, we found out there was more connections too, because <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so we find out that. Yeah. So he goes to the church of the, I'm dating a woman and he's going to the same church as, as her. And then also, uh, there's someone who listens to our show who, uh, is connected to some college students out in Davis that he's friends with. So it's just kind of like a really small world. In my past, we would have said that's a God thing. A divine so, appointment is what we said in uh, the Pentecostal church. <laughs> it is, it is auspicious that you are here. That's what it is. Suspicious, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the work that you're doing, uh, that that you're researching on, is how uh, evangelical churches become more progressive in proximity to whiteness. Is that right? Well, yeah. So I study the history of progressive evangelicalism in the United States, and I study that alongside the development of issues of race and racism that also seem to develop from the history of Christianity. So specifically, I'm looking at how the nature of evangelicalism started, what were its social contexts, like what was happening at the same time, what was evangelicalism a response to, uh, what was happening politically, and then what has happened in history since then. So you take, you know, the 1800s, you take all of these moments that were happening with evangelicalism, lay leadership. Um, a pull away from organized state-run Christianity that was happening in, um, you know, the hundred years before that. And you par- partner that with the growing, the, the growing ideas of um, 
nationalism in the United States and this belief that a uh, Christian church should be in every town. And, the, and in order to, to have a Christian church be in every town, you had to have lay leadership, right? And so in order to have lay leadership, you had to have people willing to forego a formalized education. And in that process, you believe very specific and very certain things about the Bible, right? And so these, so then that's sort of like the development of evangelicalism, right? It's this like, it's a religion that appeals to um, the populace. It's a religion that appeals to a lot of people. It's religion that appeals to typically more rural communities. Um, And then, you know, you partner that with what's happening in the United States, specifically in the East and the South. You have these really highly charged, racialized notions of Christianity. So like to be an American Christian inherently meant to be white and American and Christian. So there was not a big divide between sort of like your religious identity and your physical identity. Because communities were like communities were segregated. Yeah. Pretty sharply. Yeah. You know, the history of Christianity is, is it, it spread throughout the world in a modern sense. Once it was attached to the countries that were doing a lot of the um, colonizing. Right. So then you have, so there's not a big divide between what it means to be Christian, and what it means to be white. That's a more modern convention. And so as evangelicalism developed uh, alongside these issues of race and racism in the United States, evangelicalism obviously then would lead you to believe that it has its roots in um, American notions of white authority, white power. It was a religion that, is, uh, that established itself along these ideas of white authority. So even though evangelicalism was one of the first religions that made an approach toward communities of color, that was because those communities, you know, black communities were able to practice among themselves. Black communities, you know, this was the a, a big idea was the save um, the salvation of all souls, right? And so then you have, you know, that's the first time that people that black people were thought of as having a soul, you know, was through this idea, and so. Black people are growing an identity of, you know, being human, one, you know, being people that existed that weren't just objects and weren't just possessions as it had been the case before. Um, They were establishing a Christian identity in the United States. Um, And same, you know, similarly to, excuse me, similarly to these ideas of white Christianity. So you have these two things that were growing, right? And jump ahead a few years, you still have this really strong idea of what it means to be white, this really strong idea of what it means to be Christian. And you have these other developing Christian ideas, being black and being Christian, being Mexican, being Christian, whatever. So as time progressed and as issues progressed, you see the evangelical church, you know, developing into progressive spaces. They're being LGBT inclusive. They're including women in leadership. Um, And I think that a lot of this is in proximity to whiteness, right? So you have these ideas that, um, evangelicalism is still a church for white people. It's still a church that was constructed for white spaces. It's still a church that is constructed in white culture, still a church that, um, sings white music. It's still a church that lives out culturally white social expressions. Right. So even as issues become, even as the church develops into more progressive views, you know, like LGBT inclusion and like women in leadership, my thinking and the work that I'm doing focuses specifically on how that happens in proximity to whiteness and that the identity of being Christian and the identity of being white um, 
especially in evangelicalism, are still sort of one and the same. Man, that's a lot um, to yep. <laughs> to take in. <laughs> yes, so, <it> first <laughs> of all, like how what brought you to this work? Like why this? Like what in your background or your personality brought you to kind of really wanting to explore this particular issue? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for me, so what the listeners won't know is that I look white and I'm very much Latino. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, like I mentioned in that story. And I grew up in a big Mexican family. My parents are brown, my grandparents, aunts, uncles are brown. And, you know, every, I, probably every, <laughs> every 10th child in our family has light skin. And, you know, if you understand the history of the, of, you know, colonized blood, a lot of people from New Mexico have part Iberian, you know, Spanish blood and part indigenous blood. And so that's why some people are brown. Some of us are white and, but very culturally Latino. That's what I say. And so being from a place, being from New Mexico, where there are lots of people like me, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I had sort of like a physical difference than people around me. And then I moved to Denver, Colorado in 2009, started attending churches there and started to recognize as a, you know, sort of like an internally identified Latino, but externally I look white. I, I started to recognize, wow, I'm the only Latino in a lot of these spaces. And I started to, I remember there was this one time I had a busted ankle and I hadn't gone to church as I, I was visiting this church, you know, on and off for like a year. And so I, I hurt my ankle. I'd missed a few weeks. I had gone late back. Um, I'd gone back to church. I was late this one Sunday because my ankle was hurting and I, I had to walk. And I get into this church late. I'm sort of hobbling and I, I stumble into the back of the, of the church and I scan the room. One, I was just looking for a seat that was, you know, accessible to me because I was not trying to like crawl my way through all of the people to get to a middle seat. But as I was doing that, I scanned the room and I said, oh my God, there is literally one other person of color, you know, obviously that I could tell physically in this space of probably 500 people. And it was such an eye-opening moment for me in that time to say, wow, like, what is it that is drawing me to this place? I'm new to Denver, still very much identify as a Latino, probably more so because I'm in such a white city. And I'm attending this church that has only one or two other people who present as a person of color. And there could be more people who are like me, who have light skin, who pass for white, but aren't. But, you know, in those moments where you scan the crowd, it's a very isolating feeling. And so that was the first time I ever noticed race in the evangelical church. And, you know, go on to work in churches and, you know, not necessarily, not, um, I was doing a lot of volunteering. I was involved in the praise bands forever and a, a number of different churches. And I go on to become really involved in um, this other church. And I was doing an internship at the time and, and I'm talking to them about, this is probably three or four years ago. It was three years ago, and we were talking about the Syrian refugee crisis, the start of the Syrian refugee crisis. And I'm sitting in a room full of all these white guys and me, and we are start we start talking about the Syrian refugee crisis. And I'm I'm an intern there, I'm not in a, an official position of leadership, but I was sort of at the table, and they were talking about it. And they're like, "What should we do?" And I was like, "Well, you guys need to say something. I think you should say something about how you know if we're going to be this." you know, progressive evangelical space, we need to say something about this. And not a single one of the guys knew what the Syrian refugee crisis was. And I thought it was sort of like beyond coincidental that I'm sitting at a room full of 
five pastors of a really large church, and not one of them really knew what the Syrian refugee crisis was, and feeling like we are calling ourselves progressive, but what are we progressive about? Like, what does this mean to be progressive? Are we progressive because we're LGBT inclusive? Are we progressive because there's one other woman pastor who at that time happened to be out on maternity leave? Like, what does it mean to be progressive in this space? And so that's when I started thinking about it even more seriously and thought about, you know, I was finishing my master's. I was, as I mentioned, at it, doing my internship, which is the last year of my MDiv process. And, you know, I thought, you know, this is so interesting to me. Why is it that I have been involved in all of these white spaces before and felt like an outsider still? Like, what is this? Even as I'm being allowed in because of, you know, LGBT identity, I'm, I identify as gay. So even as I'm being allowed in as a gay man, sure, I can pass as a straight guy. Sure, I can pass as a white guy. But what does it mean to be inclusive for the people who aren't able to pass? What does it mean to be inclusive for those who have more of an outward presentation of their, you know, their social difference? And so that's why I started studying this. I applied to religious studies programs, looking specifically to study this more contemporary history, because I thought, you know, this is an evolu- this is an evolutionary space. This is new. You know, evangelicalism is only recently considering itself progressive. So even as we're becoming progressive, even as we're calling ourselves this in a political and it's a political word, but even as we're more politically aligned with um, progressive social concern. Um, it still felt super white to me, which did not feel progressive at all. So there are churches that are moving toward the progressive end of the spectrum that are evangelical, non-denominational, or maybe there are some denominations that are getting more progressive. Is that right? Because I've I run anecdotally into a few churches that, for instance, voted to become um, open and affirming. And that's like code language for being open toward LGBTQ inclusion. Um, so is that like a general shift in our culture right now that evangelicalism is kind of headed that direction? Because Well, yeah, I think. So my less formal observation about this question that I've come to is that if you're not becoming progressive, you're going to die. If your church is if your church is so stagnant or so behind on social issues that you're still grappling with issues of like um, treating poor people well, or, you know, like being inclusive of women in some kind of leadership role. To me, there, those are like time stamped processes. So if your church is still grappling with these old issues, it's likely that you're not going to draw a community of people that can get behind what you have to say theologically, because if you're still espousing theological beliefs that women are, you know, subordinate to men, that, that feels sort of dated. That feels like, okay, I get it. I get where this comes from historically. I don't believe in that anymore. What else do you have to say? What else can you offer? Especially because younger generations are more open to moving away from that because you don't have a lot of young. So, so basically the timestamp is generational in effect. Yeah, right. Because in, in the social world, we're seeing, you know, like colleges have more enrollees uh, who are women than the, who are men, right? So you're seeing these this swift change. I mean, still, there are all these other social concerns, like, you know, obviously, there's not a full, there's not full equity in any one sense, I would say. However, as these spaces are moving toward that process, um, the church tends to reflect social life, if not just a few years behind. And so I think that's the natural progression of um, Christian life is that it becomes inclusive of these social concerns, right? So you become inclusive of LGBT identity, you become inclusive of women in leadership, you become inclusive of 
genuine concern for the poor, not just this like arbitrary throw money at this one cause or, you know, like, let's go out and do this mission work to save the brown people. I, I think people are becoming more progressive about what it means to do all of these acts, you know, in the name of in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. So I think there's a natural evolution that takes place. However, so this is the interesting intersection where my work comes in, which is, yes, society is moving along these progressive lines, and so the church is going to follow, but what is it, what is it going to do for greater society if, if greater society isn't even grappling with its issues, with its issues of race and mm-hmm. racism, right? So if the contemporary white world is not willing or able to look at themselves as inculcated in the idea of being racist— like how much less likely is the church going to become aware and move forward in that same space? So in Um, terms of like being progressive, because you you say progressive evangelical and it kind of messes with my head a little bit. I'm not used to hearing those words. (laughs) For us, it's new frontier for us. Uh, So you're talking about them moving forward and are you saying, or do you think that, um, that it's easier for them to move forward in uh, progressive issues in terms of, poverty because they're seeing more white people who are poor as a result of our economic downturn recently and LGBTQ community because they see more white people within that community. And that's easier for them to progress in those because of the, the race dynamic and that they're falling behind when it comes to racism. And there's white, there's white women. So, you know, women inclusion and leadership because like, you know, that's a close to whiteness. Yeah. So I always, I I use this phrase um, proximity to whiteness, proximity to whiteness. And so I think that is because, so I, this like partnering theory, which may have already been done, I'm not sure if, if others have done this work, but this partnering theory is this idea that um, people become, you know, sort of progressive, quote unquote, uh, along the lines of exposure, right? So yes. if you're exposed to difference, you tend toward being more open-minded toward that difference. Mm-hmm. So it's no coincidence that these very Southern, very rural communities are often the the communities that are the most uh, anti-Muslim, the most anti-LGBT, the most anti-immigrant, because they are the least exposed to those communities, right? Uh, So it's all about exposure. And so when you're talking about um, becoming more progressive on an issue like LGBT inclusion, you're likely going to be more exposed to that issue if you have LGBT members or LGBT family members, or, you know, there's some sort of relationship to the church and an LGBT cause. So then you take that and you partner that with the intersection of whiteness. And then it's like, you know, you have these white churches that are these white social constructions who are building these relationships with the white LGBT community within their proximity, they're going to tend toward evolving in that way. Um, Same with, you know, we have these white male pastors who have, you know, white wives and white sisters. And so then you start to see the value in these people because you're exposed to them. And that's, so that's what actually got me thinking about race specifically and not just an issue like, you know, the delay of LGBT inclusion or the delay in women in um, leadership those happened and will continue to happen in progression over time. I think the biggest delay, the biggest sort of emotional distance that people have is uh, an emotional distance to communities of color. And I think that's because there are so, there are so many social divides between communities of color and white spaces that, um, that I think people, I think that is causing 
sort of like that lack of connection, that lack of exposure in those spaces. And so that's why I wanted to study it specifically. That, that triggers something for me. I've, I've been talking a lot lately with um, friends about what it means to be a person of color in white spaces uh, because I'm not one and hearing people's experiences. And we've all like the group I speak with, we've all kind of arrived at whiteness has robbed a lot of us, not just people of color, but white people too. The concept of whiteness itself has like robbed us of things. And it's on my, on my like side or my perspective, I'm hearing you speak and I'm like, that's what it feels like. You know, it, the, the, the way it's, the way it's defined and the way historically whiteness came to be like, it's, um, it's done a disservice to, to all kinds of people. And I think they're like literally dividing communities, right? Like back in the day, you couldn't even live in a community unless you were white. You couldn't be on the block. You couldn't spend the night. I, I have a guy in my congregation who's a retired disciples minister. And he said one of in his dorm, there was um, a black student who spent the night in the dorm. And that was the very first time. I think it must have been like, I can't remember what, what city it is, but it's near, it's down South, right? So Southern California. The first time a black person spent the night in that community overnight. And that, that memory and that whole thing, that's still alive. You know what I mean? That's not that long ago. That you can mark it with a moment, like a, a single moment in your memory tells you that it's like such an infrequent process that it's disturbing, right? That you right. can know that you have the mental note to say like, Oh, you're the first person of color that's ever done this in contemporary society. Right. That to me validates that there is such an emotional gap is such an emotional mm. distance, such an emotional distance of exposure for these white communities to connect with communities of color. You know, that's funny. I walk, you know, as I've been doing this work, I've tried really hard to just interpersonally think about my relationship to other communities of color, especially with my awareness that I present very much as white, but feel like a brown person on the inside. I think a lot about how I relate to communities of color. And so as I go through it, my day and, you know, I, I recently got back from a really long trip and I was interacting with a lot of communities of color on the East coast. And I would look at them and, you know, I'd look at some random pass random passerby and smile and feel connected and, and feel like I wanted to identify with them and feel like I did identify with them. Um, and then I, I had these moments where I thought, man, like society is robbing itself of the joy of knowing the cultural richness that communities of color offer, you know, like to, to see a person, to see, you know, take a, a woman of color presenting as p possibly indigenous to create a story in your head. That's loving and beautiful. Like what tip a typical person in white society doesn't necessarily get to do that or get to understand the sort of like full beauty of what it means to see that person living out their fullest expression. And to me, that's such a, a I grieve that I am so sad about who doesn't get to experience the joy of, people of color and the culture richness that we bring to certain communities and certain spaces. It's sad. There is something really interesting that happened recently. We, we in our denomination did some voting stuff this last week and it came out that like progressive whiteness, especially progressive whiteness that once um, that puts inclusion forward in a huge way. Uh, sometimes that kind of has like a, we called it, I guess one of my colleagues called it a wonder bread effect. It like whitewashes other communities in almost a way, like not allowing them to be who they are in their cultural fullness, uh, making, you know, progressive 
white progressive white inclusion the forefront of of like what they're doing it's forcing all these other communities because in our denomination each uh historic tradition has their own roots and they have their own expressions and it's like forcing a certain type of inclusion on all of them is almost a way of forcing whiteness on them too like it was a super so so that's interesting to me that even progressive white people have a hard time well, I wonder if part of the problem the is like the language and the rhetoric we use, right? So like we're quick to label something um, black or quick to label something Latino. But when we say, oh, that's white, we don't want to label it as whiteness. We call it, it's normalized culture, right? So like that's what everyone else does. So we don't have, we don't call it out when we see it. And therefore it sets it apart as, I feel like it, it sets it apart as an other and as a, as a, you know, a higher other because it's, it's the way that everyone kind of should fall in line. And it's, it's part of why representation on television and all that stuff is important is, be, but we don't call it out as that's white culture. And then we get offended when someone does, because I don't know. I will say that white people don't call it out as white culture, right? But exactly. Communities of color definitely call it out as white. Culture. Yes. Thank you for that it's clarification. That we, yeah. yeah. We just don't have the social authority to make it be like a less than culture, right? Or right. even um, equitable with other communities. So yeah, I think about that a lot that there's like a white and then this quote unquote non-white that even, even the, you know, even the alternatives to white are still framed along uh, according to whiteness, right? That mm-hmm. it's white or non-white. Um, and do you yeah, think, think that we also like, we sometimes we replace like white with like the American way, like it becomes synonymous with our national identity so much because instead of calling it whiteness, we call it like that's American. In- right. Yeah, I think so. Obviously, I'm not sure when this will air, but what's happening right now in time with the separation of immigrant children from their families, from their parents, you see a lot of rhetoric that says this is not us. This is not America. But people of color know dang well it that is, this yeah. is America. And so to even have a social identity that distances itself from the hardships that it causes is such a privilege, first of all, and secondly, not reality to communities of color. And I would say specifically to communities of color who do the kind of like Christ work and do this worship thing that it's like, you call yourself better than this. You have this like high moral standard of being a white Christian, all these things. But, you know, as a, as a Christian of color, as you know, growing up in this church that has seen this work, has seen you, those kind of Christians not do this work it is very much a reality to communities of color to say like, no, this is America. This is what we do. We are not the moralistic standard. We are not the moral moralistic high ground. You know, we have as, you know, as communities of color have seen you, you know, be egregious toward all of these different kinds of people. This is America. Yeah. The, the, the thing that I guess I was trying to arrive at is that it seems like progressive Christians, progressive white Christianity is all for inclusion on its own terms. Yeah, that's a really that's true. I mean like you you look at you look at communities of color that may not think exactly like, you know, the progressive Christian white base does or whatever in my denomination and the question is how are you, how can you actually be inclusive to someone in the fullness of who they are and their tradition without whitewashing them, you know? So I so that's a really good tr- and true point and something that I talked about with our mutual friend who listens to this podcast, she is um, a minister and works with a few, a few churches in Davis, California. And I went to watch her preach and she went hard on these issues of race. And, you know, she's white, but very much 
has a really strong social awareness about the needs of communities of color is what I would consider, you know, a really fortified progressive Christian that she understands her sort of, you know, her social place as a white woman. And, um, we talked after the service and I talked with her husband as well about like, what does it mean to hear a message like this and go out and live this in the world? You know, and so she was talking about what it means to be inclusive of race and in sort of like your everyday mentality. And I thought about that. It was her message was to a congregation of mostly white people. And I was thinking about, you know, what what would it how is this changing? Is it symbolic? Is it symbolic to hear this message and leave feeling good about being a non-racist? Mm-hmm. Or does it actually change the work you're doing at being a non-racist in the world? Is is this sort of like intersection of Christianity and race affecting the way that you interact with other kinds of people in the world or is it not? And, and why not? And so I was thinking about that and, you know, does it mean like to hear a, uh, to hear a sermon on what it means to be a progressive Christian and what it means to be like a responsible white person in the world? Is that changing the way that you go out and you interact with, uh, the poor black man that's, um, that you pass on the street or the, or the, um, you know, indigenous woman or a brown skin woman who has multiple children, you know, again, that you pass on the street. Is it affecting the way that you think about your social interaction with communities of color? And, you know, and obviously it's rhetorical and stereotypical to sort of like think about these frames, but I guess it, it begs the question, are you able to change the way that you think about these things? Or is it just a symbolic message that you go and hear about like, oh yeah, tithing, Oh yeah, you know, it's, you know, we have to go and it's the story of Jesus. We're going to hear this one element of Jesus. Great. Now, is it going to change the way you live or is it not? And why not? Um, are, are there particular markers for a, a progressive evangelical congregation or church that kind of gives you an indication or would give them an indication like, oh, wow, we're not as far on these issues as we thought we would, whether it's like rhetoric in terms of how they talk about the world around them, or whether it's uh, something about their space or their worship service or, uh, or even their, their theology. Yeah. I mean, so if you think about these kinds of church spaces as white constructs, I would say probably most of them are pretty far off from being the inclusive space that they sort of like ideally desire. But that's not to say that you can't evolve your theology. Um, but I want, you know, I want people to recognize that Christianity is for the most part a white social construction, right? So the kind of people who would, if it's like a 90% white church, it's likely that this is a white social construction. So that means that the music you're likely playing appeals to a white audience, a white congregation. It likely means that you have white people in leadership. It likely means that you have white ways of interacting socially. So it might not be as collectivistic than a church of made up of a community of color. So all of these are the social markers that I look for in my, as I sort of study these evangelical, these progressive evangelical spaces. Like I always, I sort of wonder like in that same way, there's, I've kind of been developing this thought, which is, how do you know when you're in an evangelical church? The definition is so nebulous. People don't often know what it means to define evangelicalism. People think evangelicalism is a denomination. All this stuff is not true, but you can, I mean, we can go into the definition of evangelicalism at another time, but. And that's something we want to do. <laughs> we want to have an episode where we talk about naming and uh, identity and stuff in the future. I've definitely found um, some really interesting 
definitions that I think make anyway. So, so there are, there are social markers, right? Whatever the definition is, you know, when you're in an evangelical church, you can step into one and you know that it feels like it. And so it's, for me, it's those moments. Like, what is it that feels this way? And I've noticed that it's in, it's in the artwork, it's in the music, it's in the way that the people interact, it's in the way that they don't interact, it's in the way that they have, they break bread together, both for communion and also in community. It's all of these social markers that make it so that these are white social constructions, right? It's in the same way that if you're going to maybe like a Black Pentecostal church, you would know that you were in a Black Pentecostal church, not just because you're surrounded by Black people, but because there are certain social markers of African-American culture that are not the same as the social markers for white culture. Same way you could go to like back where I'm from, you would, you know, you're going to the Spanish speaking Catholic service, not just because of the language being spoken, but because of the community that gathered, how they gathered, the ways in which they gathered. Those are all social markers beyond just like the words that are being spoken by the pastor, right? There are lots of different social ways that this, that these are constructed. And so for me, the idea is not that you're going to build this, you know, utopian church where it's 25% white, 25% black, 25% native, 25% Asian. It's that's not the goal. The goal is that, and that's so I want to say one thing about that. And it's um, communities of color in history have often found their most safety and comfort in spaces that are not where white people are not present. And that has often been the church. So when evangelicalism started, um, it was one of the first times that people, that black people were able to worship on their own, to worship separately. Because there was, like you said earlier, a big emphasis on leadership. It allowed those communities to develop their own leaders. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was, again, also the first time that black people were seen as having a soul. And so their salvation was a big deal. But there was also still a lot of racial divide, right? And so they were allowed to able to build communities of worship separate from white communities. Um, so in that space, that was some of the only safety they had, uh, separate from the white gaze of society. And so even in contemporary society, it's not to say that white people are, excuse me, that people of color want to worship with white people, but there are social things that they can do to sort of like go back to that moment I was talking about a second ago, where it's like, how is this affecting the way that you live your life as a white person who's hearing these progressive issues of race being spoken at church? Um, that's really the, that's really the frontier I would like to see this work be done is not necessarily in building a community that is equal parts community of color and white, but instead honoring the sort of safety that communities of color feel separate from, you know, white majority culture, and then being able to take the messages that they're hearing in their white spaces and take them out into the world and genuinely affect change in how they view issues of race and genuinely change the way they feel about issues like Black Lives Matter, Syrian refugee mm-hmm. crisis, family separation at the borders, those sorts of things. That is when the theology really starts to take hold. And that's when you really can understand that a church is actually progressing on social issues of race when they're doing that sort of social work. And, and I'll tell you, those churches are much, much fewer than you know, perhaps seeing a church, you know, you can, you can drive down any street and see a church that has like a rainbow flag on it or a black lives matter banner on it or all these sorts of things. It's a whole different ball game and a much smaller amount of people that are actually, you know, doing the work of being racially inclusive in their minds, changing the way that they view their own whiteness, changing the inclusive space they have outside of the church walls. Cause that, cause that works harder. 
it's a lot harder to do. That's the work. It's like, yeah. and so part of what I'm talking about in my dissertation is thinking about this, this, which is potentially an arbit- arbitrary dichotomy, but this idea of symbolic versus authentic change, right? It's one thing to go to a church service and hear people tell you, you know, like, yeah, Black Lives Matter, great. And then to talk about the message of like, oh yeah, being racist is a sin. Great, got it. But you don't get actual ways one, you don't get a way to quantify what it means to be racist. There are not like, because it's too guilt-ridden of a process to be able to sort of say like, yep, this is how we're racist. It's in all of these ways. This is how we've built a society that that um, favors whiteness over all these other um, cultural expressions. We don't. We already don't do that first and foremost. Secondly, you know, once that work is done, there are no like accountability measures in creating that social change in real life. There's nothing that's happening in these white spaces that is actually doing the work of saying like, okay, we know we're racist. We know that we have this racial background. We know the church itself is a part of the problem. And this is how we can go on and change these things. This is the, these are the different ways that we can think about these social interactions. This is how you can treat a person of color when you're interacting with them. These are all the things that you likely think because society has embedded you with all these racist thoughts. And here are a few ways to combat those as you're interacting socially with communities of color in your everyday life. That work is hard, and that's why people aren't doing it as much, because it requires the work of look, turning the microscope inward, turning it onto yourself, searching one's own soul, and finding those deep, dark places that, of course, who wants to do that? That's a challenging process, but it will only be when those people in those spaces do that, that this will transition from symbolic to authentic change. I know that you're saying that exposure is a key element for a lot of people's change, right? You don't, you don't want to build a community that's 25% each, you know, different cultural identity. But I, I believe what you said that, um, in my life until it affected someone I knew nothing mattered like LGBT inclusion didn't matter until I had a friend who it really affected. And then that brought me into a new space. Um, there, there probably has to be some sort of exposure for congregations to really actually dig deep, right? I mean, so how do you craft exposure that's not on white people's terms? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that is the beauty of social media. I mean, social yeah. media is, I think the reason we are living in such a, a shifting world is specifically because of social media and the amount of things that we are exposed to as a globalized society that we weren't exposed to even 10, 15 years ago. So you have all these things, all of these opportunities at your fingertips that it doesn't require the work of like you know, you're the tokenized black or brown right. person in your congregation to say, this is how you can love me, white people. It's not that. It's to be those white people in those spaces saying like, okay, I'm seeing the cries of these children. I'm seeing the cries of these parents. I'm seeing the cries of the black community when yet another member, young man, young woman in their community is being gunned down by police. I'm seeing those cries and I'm searching the moments that I have of pause that prevent me from being fully emotionally invested in this story. I'm seeing those moments now that maybe I wasn't able to see before. It doesn't take the work of the communities of color to come in and change you. It takes you know, sort of the idea of being introspective, understanding that these are systems that have been set up for hundreds of years that benefit certain communities and starting, you know, taking the first glance inward. That can easily be done by any person 
at any level. It doesn't also require it coming necessarily from the pastor down. It could be in your small groups. It can be in those social interactions you have with your, you know, your Christian friends where you're talking about this deeper stuff. Those are those moments where you can reflect inward that you say, wow, I saw this. And I thought about my own issues of like, I wondered why I hesitated when I thought about yeah, I mean, you know, you have people who are like, yeah, you know, definitely let's separate those families. They're coming here illegally. And it's in that moment where you pause and you look, why is it that I think this? Why is it that I think that they're criminals? What does it mean to be a criminal? What does it mean to be pursuing asylum? Like, what is that social difference? What is that one progressive person in my life saying that I hadn't thought about before? That those are those moments of exposure. And then, you you know, if we're talking specifically theologically in a Christian church, then you tie that into the message of Jesus, which is mm-hmm. Jesus was working specifically in these ways, I think, to help people sort of like remember love, to regather what it means to be loving and bring God back into those moments of exposure to say like, wow, the opposite of my fear right now is love. And, mm-hmm. you know, God and Jesus or whatever sort of like your spiritual path guides you to the source of love, that is the opposite of this fear that I'm experiencing. That is that moment of exposure that happens that can change the way that you look at the social situation. It's too hard. I, I feel like there peop- our whiteness is so developed over and against other forms of like humanity, other expressions of humanity outside of whiteness that like to actually dig deep and question that about our own whiteness is so threatening that people won't do it. You know, it's like, there's too much wrapped up. Okay. So just the black lives matter and, um, Stephen Clark, I'm in Sacramento, right? He was shot. Even that to question like the police in that situation who were white, like is to question your own whiteness, you know, like that's, there's so much emotionally involved there for at least people that I've worked with, not just in my congregation, but beyond that to identify with the feelings of the Black Lives Matter or the just the family that was affected is to like deconstruct your whiteness to some extent, your own personal identity, because our identity is built on the subjugation of other other identities. Well, I think you have to think first and foremost about the entire system being structured around the same point. So it is white, but it's also okay. So this is the thing that I think people have to. It is not necessarily just about peeling away your whiteness from all these other social markers. Mm-hmm. It's more about looking at how whiteness has been attached to all these other social, um, all these other parts of social life. Right. So it's not just that, it's not just that the police killed another young black man. It's that the police, the whole system is built up around the idea of criminalizing behaviors that happen in communities of color and not criminalizing or calling something lawful that is happening because it's what white people do, right? So it's just like, it's recognizing the entire notion in in a set, not and not in a separate way from whiteness, but looking at how those were all sort of one in the same systems. So like things that are legal are things that white people do, right? So an example of that is like legalizing of marijuana. Legalizing marijuana became a thing when white people realized that they can make money from the process of legalizing marijuana. Right. So that you change the law to make it reflect that it is now something that white people are doing and now it's legal, right? So you have these moments where you sort of like transition an issue from you know being illegal to being legal because you start to see like oh yeah here's this other intersection where this is a thing that you know white people are doing so now it's now it's 
permissible. So not based on whether it's actually right or wrong, just based on whether white people do it or not. Right. So if you're thinking if if what you define as right or wrong is the things that you're doing. So like the things that you're doing are right and the things that they're doing are wrong. What whoever the they are in this process. If you if you switch that frame up entirely, you're able to I think have more alignment with the communities of color around you that are that you can sort of take a step back and say, why is this illegal in the first place? Why is it legal that we sort of like shoot? Okay, I'm even taking a step further back. Why is it that I'm so afraid of that black man? Why is it that I'm so afraid of the behaviors and actions that they're doing? Like that in itself is those moments of pause where you can step back and say, whoa, what is this first thing that's happening? Why is it that I chose to be in this space where I'm like, protecting the law? What does it mean that I'm protecting the law? What am I protecting exactly? Why is it that I think that the police are always right? Like whose rights are they protecting? Because if you go into a community of color and you ask them how they feel about police, I mean, I guarantee you, you're going to have a much different response than they're always good. They're always here to do right. They're always serving. They're always, you know, providing justice to communities. That's not true for communities of color hundred percent of the time. So what is, what are those moments when that happens that make it so that the whole system is based around like a white way of living. And yeah, that sounds crazy and really vast and really big, but also I think you're able to see how it's a systemic problem, how it's not just you, the individual, how it's not just like, you know, Oh, I should, I'm supposed to feel guilty now that this is designed for me. No, it's not designed to make you feel guilty. It's designed to help you illuminate your perspective on why it is that other communities are suffering because of a specific space in society that you benefit. It's a totally different frame. Yeah. Well, when you think in terms of uh, white evangelicalism, uh, I guess evangelicalism is that's kind of, uh, you know, double meaning because evangelicalism right. is predominantly white. But when, right. when you think in terms of that, like how there's this immediate reaction towards guilt, but within a theological framework, there's kind of an embracing of guilt. Like, you know, God search my heart. God make me pure. Like that. I, I call it like that David posture, you know, of, of scripture <laughs> and how we're fine with that. But when it comes to the issue of race, that's where it's like, well, don't make me feel guilty. And we, we're not embracing it there. And I think that's really fascinating when you frame it in those those terms on how uh, there really is, there is a zeroing in on the issue of race and how difficult that is for evangelicalism to, to first accept. And then number two, once it's accepted to just to take a moment and sit and just listen and take in the experience of others without having to like impose any kind of action or any kind of, any kind of action that kind of directs people back into what the path we think things should be and really right. just, stand in, in solidarity sometimes and, and be active politically. Cause even the history of evangelicalism, I'm thinking of terms of, you know, sometimes when it comes to race, they'll say, well, that's too political. We don't want to get too political, but yet they'll be the first ones at the abortion clinic or other issues right. that are more in line with where they're at. So yeah, that's just so we it's had crazy that to think about it. Last night at intersections, we talked about uh, politics and faith and what kept coming up for white evangelical people like me was, and like several others who were in my group, they said that the church never spoke about politics ever. It was like a mum topic. You don't talk about politics. You just talk about the gospel until you talk about politics. Like, you know, Prop 8 comes up. Everyone like raises money. They have people out there right. afterward, like becoming super political. So it is kind of like a – it's interesting, the the intersection of those things. Yeah, and it's also funny to me to hear people say like the church never talked about politics when <laughs> life is politics. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
our bodies are political. Our mm-hmm. our very presence is a political. Like you occupy political space just by living. For instance, one one, one thing that you said, you said one of the markers of uh, white evangelicalism that you that you could just feel when you get in there is opposed to collectivistic understandings, a more individualistic or even hyper individualistic understanding. So in the law. It's not the law in the community. It's the law in me as an individual. That's how I experience the law as a white person. It's like, it's just me, my personal responsibility, and the law. Whereas if you're in a, a community of color, you notice how you're policed differently as a community. So you feel the community over, you know, in relationship with the law. And so, like, I, I think that these issues are difficult specifically for white evangelicals because we interpret them all in an individualistic way as opposed to systemic ways where other groups might be able to see the whole system. Yeah, that's I and I've had a lot of conversations like this specifically with white men to say like, "Oh, am I just supposed to feel guilty about that?" And it's like individualism <laughs> is a privilege like that you can think of like that we can trash on this whole crappy systemic problem and that you would come back and say oh well am i just supposed to feel guilty now it's like no you're a part of the system for sure so in that respect sure if guilt is what you want to feel sure that's but it's so much bigger than you it is all about a collectivistic frame so you have to recognize how you participate with and against that that societal construction but i'm not talking about you little johnny from like up the road it's it's so much bigger than you it's to miss the point almost. Oh yeah, and to like avoid because of the guilt that you feel. To avoid specifically because you're a part of the problem. Sure, but we're all, you know, we all we all harm, we are all privileged and we are all oppressed. You know what I mean? So, if you can't take a step back to look at something like this, then I mean, to me it says that it's potentially one of those more symbolic than authentic changes that are trying to occur. We've gone through that on our podcast. I mean, We've had times where we in, would invited like a token brown person to come in and speak to issues of race. And they were like, talk about race. Like, you don't have to bring me on to speak about it because we were worried on like that, like individualistic white guilt kind of thing. And to operate on that level is to miss out on what's happening. It is to miss out on our place in it. Yeah. And to, and to sort of like not think about yourself as even like a member of a family or a member of even a smaller community. If you're only thinking about this very insular way in which, you know, the weight of racism rests solely on your shoulders, then I understand why it would feel like an overwhelming process. But if you can take this, if you can take a step back and look at like one, that you are a part of the problem, just like your very existence and the way that the system is set up is set up to benefit you. Sure. But also Because, you know, even if you want to take some of the individualism and say you have the opportunity to affect the people that surround you, that your family, your your closest friends, you can be as much a a vessel of change as you are sort of like the vessel of guilt. Wow. This is a fascinating subject. I mean, like, I feel so good about calling myself progressive. This is like the hard questions of are we being progressive? You know, like that's that's good stuff. Yeah. And I think that's the, I think that's sort of another reason why I want to challenge the progressive evangelical circle is because they are doing a lot of emotional back padding. They're so, you know, a lot of them are so proud of themselves. I would call it masturbatory almost is what I would say. (laughs) To say, to just to be so self-congratulatory about your evolution in your LGBT inclusion or your inclusion of women in leadership. And, And the way I look at it, 
not that it's easy. Those are all very difficult steps to, to happen, but it's still almost, it's, it's in line still very much with something that's already happening to your body, which is like, you're still white and your friends that you're being LGBT inclusive of are still white, you know? So are you still as inclusive in your mentality? If, if, uh, if sort of like a, a black queer feminist woman comes into your space and is like challenging you on all these notions, are you still progressive then when sort of like the very thing that you're progressive about is in your face saying like, look at me, look at my body, look at my presence. Are you still recognizing me now? Like, I think it's in those moments that feel especially hard because, you know, at the end of the day, you can sort of like soothe over your own, your own problems and your own sort of guilt by saying, okay, I'm LGBT inclusive because I let this very passable, very white, very sort of like very much like me person be allowed into this room, you know, as opposed to the people who don't look like you, who express their sexuality differently, who express their sort of like uh, race and racial identity differently than you. Are you still inclusive then? That is when it becomes the hard work. Right. What, what, what I want to bring you back on for eventually is to talk about the word, even the phrase post evangelical. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm interested. You and I had a conversation offline about like, what that even means or, you know, if you can't even be truly post-evangelical, if it's part of something that's a part of, you know, your DNA. And like, we've been feeling that a lot too. Um, we made the move to call ourselves progressive, but I'm even wondering what progressive means. I mean, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Probably. I've been processing a little bit through the, through the naming and the titles and all that stuff. And, and I think I don't like, well, one, I don't like the idea of progressive because I think it's an opposition to conservative. And I think that's a false dichotomy. Mm. Something I've been thinking a lot about, it's about fear and love. And that's so generic and so cheesy, but I think truly the core of so many of these bigger picture issues politically that we experience are about fear and love. And so to to call yourself conservative, what are you conserving, right? What What is this idea that you're holding onto? What is it that you're afraid of in moving forward? And that's a generalization, of course. But I think that the root of it, you know, you're of you're of, okay. So take an issue like these student, these not students, these children coming in from out of the country. You don't want to allow them into the country because why? Because you think they're terrorists. You think they're drug abusers. You think they're criminals, right? So the rule, the sort of like the the fun, the fundamental piece there is you're afraid. There's something that is holding you. I guess away from or against the idea of including them because of there's the fear there. Right. And so what is the opposite of that fear? It's sort of like an openness. It's a love. It's an acceptance of allowing that person to exist entirely up to them, allowing them to exist on their own terms. And what does that do to you? How does that change you? What does that love? How does that love open your own heart? I think that's the difference. So to call ourselves progressive or to call ourselves conservative, like, these are all notions that hide the deeper emotional feelings, which is just like fear. What are you afraid of? What are you holding on to? What are you preventing yourself from evolving toward? And then once you're there, once you are evolving and you're open, what are you more open to? Where is the love? What does this love mean? Is it just symbolic? Is it authentic? Blah, blah, blah. And yeah, and the post-evangelical thing, it's like, what are we post? What does it mean to be past? What does it mean to be after? What like what are we after? What came before? Like what does all of this mean? It still it feels like we're still very much grappling with evangelicalism. So to call ourselves mm-hmm. post anything is sort of like a misnomer, if you ask me. But yes, we can talk about that at the later time. 
one one thing about the 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 faith and and love dichotomy, especially in a Christian context, you look at some of like the traditions around that, and you know, First John four talks about perfect love casting out fear. And if that is a process, if Christianity is like a process or a way or a path or whatever, it will constantly move in that direction. One hundred percent. Yeah. So just okay. For example, just this morning, I was investigating this thought a little bit and wondering what the psychological ramifications are of fear and love and openness. And I was looking into it and doing a little work. (laughs) This is how you know that you're sort of like a PhD nerd. I was looking at some like some Freudian ideas of the id, the ego, and the superego, and looking at how fear is sort of like a natural part of the human existence. So fear is sort of like your initial response. If you're designed to be afraid of what's unknown around you, it's natural, sort of in the way that I see it, your go-to emotion is going to be fear. And I get that, right? You're afraid to be self-protecting. I get all of that evolutionary biology like the base part of our brain kind of like so if you're if you're sort of fundamentally afraid if you're fundamentally fearful of the world around you that makes complete sense if you're not exposed to any sort of difference any change anyone who's not like you i understand that those all of those things might seem like a threat but what does it mean to like to look directly at your fears to look directly at the things that you feel are threatening and really assess the potential damage the potential injury the potential safety or a lack of safety that you would experience by opening yourself up to that right like there are psychological things that happen in this process and so once you are able to open yourself up from like the biological response of fear what does it mean to step to step beyond that and that's why i think there's it's a dichotomy to call it fear and love because love in my mind is an openness it's a vulnerability it's a willingness to be in community it's a willingness to share and so fear prevents you from doing all of those things so if the baseline thing is fear and then the opposite of that is love and love is like joyful and it is open and it is beautiful and you get to see and witness cultures that are different than yours and appreciate them i think that is the direction I want my project to to head and where I want to see this progressive space go is to sort of let go of those moments of fear, to not just pat yourself on the back for overcoming one fear, but start to recognize what is it that I'm more broadly afraid of here and how can I be even more open and more loving to the world around me? That's where I would love to see this quote unquote progressive space go. Yeah, for sure. That's good stuff. We got a lot to talk That's about awesome in the near stuff. future. So let's <laughs> definitely uh, table the extent of that whole conversation about evangelicalism and posts and all that kind of stuff. And definitely soon follow revisit up on it. that and revisit mm-hmm. that. Cause I think that would be, that, that that would really be good because that, like Alan said, that's kind of been the progression of our show is that we started out our primarily primary identity was we're no longer evangelical. And then as we've kind of gone through it, we figured out, no, no, we're not, I don't know, not that we're past that because it's always going to be a part of our story, but we're interested in, in, you know, embracing new identities as Christian and stuff like that. So that's a part of it, but it's not it and all the, all the nuances that go on with that. So we're still in the middle of struggling yeah. through it. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard when you're in a medium that's, you know, you have to market certain. So you need terms <laughs> that you might not right. be super comfortable with to kind of draw people in and, and find out people who are like minded and stuff like that. So, well, yeah. And as you know, better, you do better. Right. So if you're evolving and it made sense at a time, you know, not to sort of feel guilt or shame about that, but to be able to continue to evolve in how you identify. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joey, for joining us this week. This oh, has thanks been, for having me. This has been really good. Uh, is there this anything we can by. do? Is there people can find your work some way or, or follow you on social media or anything like that? Yeah. Um, social media. Um, you can find, just follow my Facebook. I'm pretty progressive. Um, if you want to email me, feel free to email me, UC Davis, uh, DJTOR at ucdavis.edu. I'm open to hearing questions, thinking through a little bit more about this stuff. It, it all helps guide me toward a more solidified project anyway. So I'm really open to that. Sounds good. And we will make sure to put all that information in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 121. That's irenacast.com slash 121. And I do want to say, I'm glad that you came up to me in the bowling alley. <laughs> I'm glad yeah, that, you know, too. that that's a moment of love as opposed to fear. You're like this guy's going to think I'm weird, but got to do it anyway. I mean, yeah, honestly, we <laughs> joked about it being like a God thing, but I take those moments pretty seriously. Cause I mean, look what's come from it. So yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, well, thanks again. And again, go to the show notes, irenacast.com slash 121. And there you'll find also Alan and I's information on how you can get a hold of us through social media and all the stuff that we're doing. Uh, so for this week, thank you so much for joining the conversation. 